Chapters 31 and 32 of Love's Bitterest Cup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 31. Mrs. Force's Brother. A tall, fair, delicate-looking patrician of about forty years of age, clothed in an India silk dressing-gown, leaning on the arm of his grey-haired valet, and further supporting himself by a gold-headed cane, approached to welcome them. "'My sister, I am glad to see you, Elfrida,' he said, passing his cane over to his valet, and taking the lady by the hand to give her his brotherly kiss. "'Now present me to your husband and daughters, and to these, young friends of yours.' I am glad to see them all, very glad. Mrs. Force introduced Mr. Force, Leonidas, and the girls in turn. Lord Enderby shook hands with each in succession, and heartily welcomed them all to Enderby. You must take your place at the head of my bachelor household, Elfrida. In the meantime, my housekeeper, Mrs. Kelsey here, will show you to your rooms. As he spoke, an elderly woman, in her Sunday dress of black silk, with a white net shoulder shawl, and a white net cap, came from the rear of the hall, curtsied, and said, "'My lady, this way, if you please.' "'Breakfast will be served as soon as you are ready for it, Elfrida,' said the host, as, still leaning on the arm of his valet, and supporting himself by his cane, he turned and passed through a door on the right, into his own sanctum. Widely yawned the foot of the broad staircase, up which Mrs. Kelsey led the guests of the house, to a vast upper hall, flanked with oaken doors leading into a suite of apartments on either side.' The housekeeper opened a door on the right, saying, "'Here's a suite of five rooms, my lady, fitted up for yourself and the young ladies. And here, on the opposite side, is a large room, with the dressing-room attached, for the young gentleman. Good Lord!' This sudden exclamation from the housekeeper was called forth by the unexpected apparition of Gypsy, the negro maid, than whom no blacker human being ever saw the light. Gypsy was as black as ink, as black as ebony, Wynnette declared that charcoal made a light-colored mark on her. But aside from her complexion, Gypsy was a good-looking girl, with laughing black eyes and laughing lips that disclosed fine white teeth. "'This is my maid, Zipporah, but we call her Gypsy for convenience,' said Mrs. Force. "'Oh, my lady, will it bite? Can't it talk? Is it vicious?' inquired the Cumberland woman, who had never seen and scarcely ever heard of a negro." and had the vaguest idea of dark-colored savages in distant parts of the world who were pagans and cannibals. She is a very good girl, and can read and write as well as any of us, and she is, besides, a member of the Episcopal Church at home, which is the same as your Church of England here, Mrs. Force explained. Yes, my lady, certainly, my lady. I beg pardon, my lady, I am sure, said the housekeeper, in profuse apology, but still she did not seem satisfied, but gave Gypsy a wide berth while she eyed her suspiciously. Now Gypsy resented this sort of treatment. Besides, she was a bit of a wag, so every time her mistress's back was turned, she rolled up the whites of her big eyes, curled up her large red lips, and snapped her teeth together, in a way that made Kelsey's blood run cold. As soon as it was possible to do so, she made an excuse and left the room. "'Where is Dickon?' inquired Mr. Force. "'He's round at the kennel with the dog. "'Joshua won't make friends long in none of the grooms, "'nor likewise none of the dogs. "'So Dickon have to stay long o' him to keep him quiet,' said Gypsy. "'Mr. Force groaned. "'Now everything is going to be laid on that poor dog. "'Gypsy, I won't give you my crimson silk dress "'when I have done with it just for that. "'Papa, I can help you to dress just as well as Dickon can, "'and such a great deal better, too. 
I can fix your shaving things and hairbrushes, and lay out your clothes myself, exclaimed Wynnette. My dear, I think you had better prepare for breakfast, said her mother. Mother, we can't do much preparing, as our trunks have not been brought up. Take off your duster, my dear, and wash your face and hands and brush your hair, suggested Mrs. Force. I suppose these two rooms are yours and papa's, but which are ours? Mrs. Force walked through the whole suite, and finally assigned a room next to her own to Wynnette and Odalite, and another to Elva and Rosemary. What struck all these visitors was the heavy and rather gloomy character of their apartments. Thick Brussels carpets, thick marine window curtains, and bed curtains of dull colors and dingy appearance, massive bedsteads, bureaus, presses, and chairs. And they call this the modern part of the castle. Oh, I know I shall see ghosts, said Wynnette. When they were all ready, they went downstairs to the hall, all hung with suits of armors and decorated with arms, shields, spears, banners, battle-axes, and so on, and with stags' heads and other trophies of the battlefield and the chase. Here a footman showed them into the breakfast-room, where the earl sat waiting for them. Breakfast was served in a very few minutes. After breakfast, the whole party adjourned to the drawing-room, a vast, gloomy apartment, with walls lined with old oil paintings, windows hung with heavy, dark curtains, floor covered with a thick, dull carpet, and filled up with massive furniture. After they had been seated for a while, the earl arose, taking his cane in one hand and the arm of his brother-in-law with the other, and said, "'I hope you will amuse yourself as you please, my dears, and excuse me. I wish to have a talk on family matters with your parents in the library. If you would like to go over the house, call one of the maids or the housekeeper to be your guide,' he concluded, as he left the room, accompanied by Mr. and Mrs. Force. Odalite acted on her uncle's suggestion, rang the bell, and requested to see the housekeeper. Mrs. Kelsey came, and on being requested, expressed her willingness to show the young ladies over the house. "'And to the picture gallery first, if you please,' she said, as she led the way across the hall to a long room on the opposite side. "'Here were the family portraits.' Odalite, here are the originals of all the ghosts I saw with my eyes shut on last night's journey, and of all the ghosts I saw here on the battlements and in the courtyard. All, 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 men-at-arms, squires, knights, lords, and ladies. If they would but talk, what interesting shades they would be. Which, Wynnette, the ghosts or the pictures? Either, both. This, you say, Mrs. Kelsey, was Elfrida, Lady Enderby, my mother's mother? Why, I should have known it. How much she is like my mother, and like Elva. And this is the second and last Lady Enderby. How lovely, yet how fragile. She was Mamma's stepmother, and she died young, leaving one delicate little boy, our uncle the present earl. Sick transit, and so forth. They spent an hour in the picture gallery, and then the housekeeper proposed that they go into the library. But we cannot go there. Papa, Mamma, and Uncle are shut up there in close counsel, said Odalite. "'Ah, well, we will go upstairs, if you please, miss,' said Kelsey. And upstairs they went. And all over the vast building they went, finding only gloomy rooms, each one more depressing than the others. "'And now show me the room Queen Elizabeth slept in, went on a visit to Baron Elan of Enderby,' said Wynnette. "'Queen Elizabeth, miss! I never heard that Queen Elizabeth was ever in this part of the country,' the housekeeper exclaimed. Wynnette laughed. "'Ah, well, then,' she said, "'show me the room that Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, or Napoleon Bonaparte, or George Washington slept in.' "'I do not think I ever heard of any of these grandees stopping at Enderby, but there is a room—' "'Yes, yes,' eagerly exclaimed Wynnette. 
where the young pretender was hidden for days before he escaped to France, said the housekeeper. Oh, show us that room, Mrs. Kelsey, said a chorus of voices. The housekeeper took them down a long flight of stairs and along a dark passage, and up another flight of stairs and through a suite of unfurnished apartments, to a large room in the rear of the main building, whose black oak floor and whose paneled walls were bare, and whose windows were curtainless. In the middle of this room stood a huge bedstead, whose four posts were the dragon supporters of the arms of Enderby, and whose canopy was surmounted by an earl's coronet. The velvet hangings of this bedstead, the brocade quilt, and satin pillowcases, had almost gone the way of all perishable things. "'And the young pretender occupied this room?' inquired Rosemary, reverently. "'Yes, miss, and it is kept just as he left it, except that the curtains have been taken from the windows, because they had fallen into rags.' "'And he slept in this bed?' said Elva, timidly laying her hand upon the sacred relic. "'Yes, miss, but I wouldn't touch the quilt if I was you. Bless you, it would go to pieces if you were to handle it.' "'I would make a bonfire of every unhealthy mess in this room if it were mine,' said Wynnette. The housekeeper looked at her in silent horror. They lingered some time in the pretender's room. As they were leaving it, Wynnette said at random, "'And now show us the haunted chamber, please.' The housekeeper stopped short, turned pale, and stared at the speaker. "'Who told you anything about the haunted room?' she inquired. "'Nobody did,' replied Wynnette, staring in her turn. "'How, then, do you know anything about it?' "'By inference. Given an old castle, inferred a haunted room. Come, now, show it to us, dear Mrs. Kelsey.' "'No, you cannot see the haunted chamber, young miss. It has not been opened for ten years or more.' "'Come, this is getting to be exciting, and I declare I will see it if I die for it,' said Wynnette. "'Not through my means, you will not, young lady. But there is the luncheon bell, and we had better go down.' They returned to the inhabited parts of the house, and were shown by the housekeeper to the morning-room, where the luncheon-table was spread. There they found Mr. and Mrs. Force. Their host had not yet joined them. "'My dear,' said Mr. Force, in a low voice, addressing Odalite, we have had a consultation in the library. It is almost certain that Lady Mary Anglesia died one year before the time stated as that of her death. It is best, however, that we go down to Angleton and search for evidence in the church and mausoleum. Therefore, it is decided that Leonidas and myself go to Lancashire to-morrow, to investigate the facts, leaving your mother, sisters, and self here. We shall only be absent for a few days.' "'Oh, Papa, then you will take poor John Kirby's letter and parcel to his old father there? "'You see, they live only a few miles from Angleton,' said Wynnette. "'Yes, dear, I will take them,' assented the squire. "'And Odalite, my love,' he added, turning to his eldest daughter, "'if all goes well, we shall have a merry marriage here at Enderby.'" CHAPTER Thirty Two: AN ANXIOUS SEARCH Early the next morning, Mr. Force, Leonidas, and Wynnette, who begged to make one of the party, left Enderby Castle for Lancashire. The grey-haired coachman drove them in an open carriage to the nethermost railway station. On this drive they retraced the road on the top of the cliffs which they had traversed on the previous day. They reached nethermost just in time to jump on board the Parliamentary, a slow train. None but slow trains ever did stop at this obscure and unfrequented station. Mr. Force secured a first-class compartment for himself and party, and they were soon comfortably seated and being whirled onward toward Lancaster. For some miles the road followed the line of the coast in a southerly direction, and then diverged a little to the eastward, until it reached the ancient and picturesque town of Lancaster, 
perched upon its own hill and crowned with its old castle, which dates back to the time of John the Gaunt. Here they left their train, and on consulting the local timetable in the ticket office, found that the next train on the branch line going to the station nearest Angleton did not start until 3 p.m. This, as it was now but 11 a.m., gave the party an opportunity of seeing the town, as well as of getting a luncheon. A chorus of voices offered cabs, but Mr. Force, waving them all away, walked up the street of antiquated houses and brought his party to the ancient inn of the Royal Oak. Here he ordered luncheon to be ready at two, and then set out with his young people to walk through the town. They climbed the hill and viewed the castle, now fallen from its ancient glory of a royal fortress, not into ruin, but into deeper degradation as the county jail. But the dungeon keep, King John's Tower, and John of Gaunt's Gate remained as of old. They next visited the old parish church of St. Mary's, where they saw some wonderful stained-glass windows, brass statuary, and oak carvings of a date to which the memory of man reached not back. They could only gaze upon the outside of the cotton and silk factories and the iron foundries, before the clock in the church tower struck two, and they returned to the hotel for lunch. At three o'clock they took the train for Angleton. Their course now lay eastward through many a mile of the manufacturing districts, and then entered a moorland, waste and sparsely inhabited, stretching eastward to the range of mountains known in local phraseology as England's backbone. It was six o'clock on a warm June afternoon when the slow train stopped at a little lonely station in the midst of a moor, where there was not another house anywhere in sight. Here our travelers left their compartment and came out upon the platform, carpet-bags in hand, and the train went on its way. Our party paused on the platform, looking about them. On their right hand stood the station, a small, strong building of stone with two rooms and a ticket office. Behind that the moor stretched out in unbroken solitude to the horizon. On their left hand was the track of the railroad, and beyond that the moor rolling into low hills toward the distant range of mountains. There was not a vehicle of any sort in sight, and there were but two human beings besides themselves on the spot. One was the ticket agent, and the other the railway porter. Mr. Force spoke to the latter. "'Where can I get a carriage to take my party on to Angleton?' The man, a red, shock-haired rustic, stared at the questioner a minute before answering. "'Nowhere, master. Leaf it be at to white crew.' "'And where is the white cow?' inquired the gentleman. The rustic stretched his arm out and pointed due east. Mr. Force strained his eyes in that direction, but at first could see nothing but the moor stretching out in the distance and rolling into hills as it reached the range of mountains. "'Papa,' said Wynnette, who was straining her eyes also, "'I think I see the place. I know I see a curl of smoke and the top of a chimney, and the peak of a gable and roof. I think the rise of the ground prevents our seeing more.' "'Oi, oi, yon is to white coo assented the porter. "'How far is it from here?' inquired Mr. Force. "'Tall moles, maester. "'Can't you go there and bring us a carriage of some sort? "'I will pay you well for your trouble,' said Mr. Force. "'Na, maester, oi might leave the station.' "'Uncle,' exclaimed Lee, "'I can go and bring you a carriage in no time. "'You take Wynnette into the house and wait for me.' And without more ado, Lee ran across the track and strode off across the moor. Mr. Force took Wynnette into the waiting room of the little wayside station where they sat down. There was no carpet on the floor, no paper on the walls, no shades at the windows, but against the walls were rows of wooden benches, and on them large posters of railway and steamboat routes, hotels, watering places, and so forth, 
and one picture of the winner of the last derby. They had scarcely time to get tired of waiting before Lee came back with the most wretched-looking turnout that ever tried to be a useful conveyance. It was a long cart covered with faded and torn black leather and furnished with wooden seats without cushions. Its harness was worn and patched, but there was one comfort in the whole equipage. The horse was in very good condition. It was a strong draught horse. "'I shall not have to cry for cruelty to animals, at any rate,' said Wynnette, as her father helped her up into a seat. "'How far is it to Angleton?' inquired Mr. Force of the driver. "'Sucks moles, sir,' answered the man. "'Sucks moles, if you're tech it cross to moor, but ton round by to rood.' "'Is it very rough across the moor?' inquired Mr. Force. "'Muddlin', maister,' replied the man. "'Go across the moor,' said the gentleman, as he stepped up into the carriage. Lee followed him, the horse started and trudged on, jolting them over the irons of the railway track and striking into the very worst country road they had ever known. Yes, it was rough riding across that moor, sitting on hard benches, in a cart without springs, and drawn by a strong, hard-trotting horse. Our travellers were jolted until their bones were sore before they reached the first stopping place. This was the White Cow, an old-fashioned inn, in a dip of the moor, where the ground began to roll in hills and hollows toward the distant mountains. The house fronted east, and as it lay basking in the late afternoon summer sun was very picturesque. Its steep gable roof was of red tiles with tall twisted chimneys and projecting dormer windows. Its walls were of some dark gray stone with broad windows and doors, and a great archway leading into the stable yard. A staff with a swinging sign stood before the door. The declining sun threw the shadow of the house in front of it, and in this shade a pair of country laborers sat on a bench, with a table before them. They were smoking short pipes and drinking beer, which stood in pewter pots on the board. This was the only sign of life and business about the still place. As the cart drew up, Mr. Force got out of it and helped his daughter to alight. Lee followed them. "'I think we will go in the house and rest a while, and see if we can get a decent cup of tea, my dear.' We have had nothing since we left Lancaster at three o'clock, and it is now half-past seven. You must be both tired and hungry, said the squire, leading her in. I'm killed, sire, responded Wynnette, misapplying a line from Browning as she limped along on her father's arm. The man who had driven them from the railway station, and whom after developments proved to be waiter, hostler, groom, and bootblack rolled into one for the guests of the white cow, left his horse and cart standing, and ran before Mr. Force to show the travellers into the house. It was needless, but he did it. They entered a broad hall paved with flagstones. On the left of this an open door revealed the tap-room, half full of rustic workingmen, who were smoking, drinking, laughing, and talking, and whose forms loomed indistinctly through the thick smoke, tinted in one corner like a golden mist by the horizontal rays of the setting sun that streamed obliquely through the end window. On the right, another open door revealed a large, low-ceilinged parlor, with whitewashed walls and sanded floor, a broad window in front filled with flowering plants and pots, and a broad fireplace at the back filled with evergreen boughs and cut paper flowers. On the walls were cheap-colored pictures, purporting to be portraits of the queen and members of the royal family. Against the walls were ranged Windsor chairs. On the mantelpiece stood an eight-day clock, flanked by a pair of sperm candles and brass candlesticks. In the middle of the floor stood a square table, covered with a damask cloth as white as new-fallen snow, and so smooth and glossy, with such sharp lines where it had been folded, that proved it to have been just taken from the linen press and spread upon the table. 
The house might be old-fashioned and somewhat dilapidated, not to say tumble down, as to its outward appearance, but this large, low-ceilinged room was clean, neat, fresh, and fragrant as was possible for a room to be. "'This is pleasant, isn't it, Papa?' said Wynnette, as she stood by the flowery window, threw off her brown straw hat, pulled off her gloves, drew off her duster, put them all upon one chair, and dropped herself into another. "'Yes, if the tea proves as good as the room, we shall be content,' replied Mr. Force. The man of all work, who had slipped out and put on a clean apron, and taken up a clean towel, with magical expedition, now reappeared to take orders. "'What would you please to have, sir?' "'Tea for the party, and anything else you have in the house that is good to eat with it.' "'Yes, sir.' and the waiter pulled the white tablecloth this way and that, and smoothed it with the palms of his hands, apparently for no other reason than to prove his zeal, for he did not improve the cloth. Mr. Force and Lee walked out to look around, they said. End of chapter 32